Acts chapter 12 this morning. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Uh, it's just a really good story this morning, honestly. Uh, we're calling this sermon Exodus, a sequel. And that'll make sense as we make our way through this chapter, through this story. Uh, as we approach the text this morning, we're going to do something different. I'm just going to read the last verse to start, uh, verse 24, and then we'll read through the whole story as we go. Because it reads like a story. It is a story. It happened. And so we'll approach the text that way. Um, but let me read verse 23, and then, or verse 24, and then we'll pray. Acts 12, 24 says this. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that uh, sometimes it's just really fun to read and there's really good stories involved. Um, But I thank you that more than just history and more than just a good story, what we have before us right now is your word. Like it's, it's been breathed by you, God. It has Holy Spirit supernatural power, power to save power to lead us back to you, God, power to sustain us. And so we just ask that you would unleash the power of your word this morning. You would help me just to be faithful to it. You would help us as a church um, come to life. You would revive us, restore us, wake us up, Lord. Together, would you just fix our eyes on who you are? And ultimately, we just want to see more of Jesus. So help us see Jesus in and through this story. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I don't know if you are into film or literature or whatever. I am. And my wife and I just finished watching a pair of kind of like classic movies, uh, Terminator and Terminator 2, right? This is like 80s, 90s. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I remember I saw that in theaters. I wasn't born yet, but um, they were awesome. And here's the thing about sequels, right? Uh, sequels, like we all watch a movie, we love it, and then a sequel comes, and you're like, man, is this going to ruin the movie? Is it going to be better? People say Terminator 2 is maybe one of the few sequels that could be better than the original. Um, so anyways, we're watching it. It was awesome. But here's the thing that, that's special about sequels. When they're good, we love sequels because it's like, man, I love these characters. I love this universe, and it's just more time with them. And it's like, we already know what's going on, and so it's just more of the story. Now, here's the thing about sequels. The Bible does that type of thing. Uh, There are certain stories in the Bible that kind of get retold over and over and over again. Um, And in fact, if, if we know how to read the Bible properly, we know that every story in the Old Testament is retold in a sense in Jesus. Jesus is like fulfilling all of these stories in the Old Testament. So couple really quick examples. Abraham and Isaac. Remember when God was like, Abraham, I want you to give me to sacrifice your son, your one and only son. And Isaac has wood on his back and he's carrying the wood. He's going to be sacrificed on his back, going up a mountain. But at the last minute, the Lord provides a sacrifice, right? Sounds familiar. That's, that's retold in Jesus. God, the father didn't spare his own son. Jesus was sacrificed for us. Or how about David? We just love the stories of David, this great king who would love the Lord and lead his people to the Lord, who would defeat giants, the Lord's enemies. Like we know that that's pointing to Jesus. And maybe the most famous story in the Bible is the story of the Exodus. We have the people of God. So I mean, just picture this. this is a story. This is art God has given us. We have the people of God and they're enslaved by this oppressive king. Then we have this unlikely hero. He's 80 years old. Shout out if you're 80. Like that's the beginning of the story. And he performs supernatural judgment 
on this evil king, he delivers his people. An angel of the Lord comes. He kills all the firstborn sons unless your house was covered in the blood of the lamb. And then he leads his, his people into the wilderness through an impossible obstacle, the Red Sea. Then judgment is rent on this evil king and then the people are brought to a promised land. That's probably the most famous storyline in the Bible. And these stories that God has given us, God breathed, are to form us and shape us. They give us categories to understand things like the world and our life with Jesus and suffering and oppression and deliverance and God's judgment on evil. God communicates what he's like through these actual stories that happened in history in his word. And this morning, Luke and the Holy Spirit were just in the mood to like retell the Exodus. And so they do. This chapter of Acts chapter 12 is a retelling of Exodus. We have in this story another wicked king. He's oppressing the people of God. We have the people of God in chains, enslaved. Then at night, we have uh, during the celebration of Passover, the very celebration where God delivered his people. The angel of the Lord comes and he leads, he delivers his people out of chains and bondage. He leads them to this great barrier, these iron gates and supernaturally parts these gates and he escapes. God delivers his people and then the chapter ends with that very king being supernaturally judged by God. It's just, this, this story is another, it's a sequel to the Exodus. And as we read this story, we're gonna be, uh, there's kind of like three, important acts, like acts as in like chapters in a sense of this story. The first uh, like five verses, the theme of of it is suffering and oppression. The second bit is deliverance. And then the third is God's judgment on evil. So we're going to look, we're just going to read straight through it. But, But as we read the first five verses, here's the big picture. The people of God will suffer. This, this is true, it has happened, and it will happen. And so as we read this story, we, let this shape your mind. God is telling you, if you are mine, you will suffer. And so the story begins, uh, it, let's read verses one to three together. I'm reading out of the NIV. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Okay, so pause real quick. Who is Herod? Because we've heard of Herod, right? Uh, Here's a little Bible trivia. This is actual, you can shout out loud if you know. Does anybody know how many Herods there are in the New Testament? I'm giving it away subconsciously. There's four. There's four Herods. Uh, quick Bible history because th- these Herods are in the New Testament and you're like, wait, I thought he died, but there he's back and there's another Herod. So number one, the first Herod in the New Testament is Herod the Great. We have a little this is Bible info for you here. He ruled 47 to... 4 BC. He was the one who built the temple. He was the one who was ruling when Jesus was born. He was the one who killed all the baby boys for fear of Jesus. That's Herod the Great. Next, we have his son, known as Herod Antipas. He ruled uh, 4 BC to 39 AD. He was the one who we read in the Gospels. He beheads John the Baptist. He, he was the one who participated in the execution. Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod Antipas. Then we have his son, Herod Agrippa I, 
who is in our story this morning. He ruled 37 AD to 44, short little reign. And he was the one who's in this story persecuting the church. And let me just spoil it. He dies at the end of this story. And then we have his son, Herod Agrippa II. He ruled from AD 50 to 100. So he was like a big deal king. He was around for a long time. And he was the one at the end of the book of Acts where Paul is before another Herod. So those are the four Herods of the Bible, just so you can kind of understand. And here's the thing about the Herods. They are all bad dudes in the Bible. They are all wicked, evil men. We see each of them killing innocent people. And so we see this Herod and he just, it's, it's almost a footnote. It's almost easy to pass over. It says, yeah, he's persecuting the church. Oh yeah, he kills James, the brother of John with the sword. And then he arrested Peter. And remember like James, like wait, what? Just a little side note verse. Yeah, James, you know, one of the three disciples, he's gone. He just got beheaded. And I feel like sometimes when we read the Bible and we read stories, it's really easy just to pass over important stuff like that. Oh yeah, James, you know, he got beheaded. And, and I think that's profound because sometimes our suffering also feels like that. Right, like this is important. This is like my whole life. I'm suffering and it just kind of gets passed over or it just feels insignificant or it feels pointless. Like, yeah, yeah, and James, he got beheaded, moving on. I think sometimes our suffering feels like, wait, does anybody like see I'm suffering? Like if you're James, Peter gets this whole great story. James is like, oh, beheaded, that's all, that's what I get. Um, I think we can often feel like, does anybody see or notice or care? And here's an important truth We need to know about suffering as the people of God. As a child of God, your suffering is never pointless. It is never passed over by God. We don't live in an arbitrary universe, even though it may feel like that. We don't live in a universe where just at the foolish whim of an evil person, you suffer and that's that's it. That's how it goes. I know it often feels that way, but our suffering as children of God is never in vain. It's never pointless. If, if you remember, think back to the conversation. Do you remember when James and his brother John came up to Jesus one day and they're like, hey, Jesus, we want you to do something. And actually, we get context later. It was actually, they sent their mom to do this for them. Hey, I want, we want to sit at your right hand in your kingdom. And Jesus kind of, I'm sure he just kind of smiles like, okay, guys. And he says, you don't understand what my kingdom is like and what it takes to be there. And he says, can you drink the the cup I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And what he's talking about is the cross and suffering. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that, Jesus. We can do that. And Jesus says, you know what? You will. You will suffer. That is coming. And, And here's the thing. This is that moment for James that Jesus was talking about. The day will come, James, when your life will be taken. And everything you have, it feels like injustice is reigning and evil people are ruling over your life and then you're dead. But here's what I love. Do you know what James saw when he opened his eyes? He saw Jesus. And do you know what later in the Bible we know? There's a throne sitting next to Jesus with James' name on it. And he's like, come take your seat. Well done for suffering, for enduring. It wasn't useless. Come sit with me. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Like that's you, your suffering. You're suffering with Jesus. If you suffer with Jesus, you will reign with him. And here's a surprise about suffering. Suffering is a direct path to Jesus. Sometimes like literally your life is taken you're with Jesus. But other times, suffering strips other lesser things away so that all that remains is Jesus. 
And, and listen, I'm young. I haven't suffered much. But the few times I have suffered and the pressure was on or I just was being treated wrong, I have never enjoyed intimacy with Jesus like those seasons. I wouldn't want them back necessarily, but there's a sense in which, man, when the fire and the pressure and the suffering is on, even if nobody else knows and it feels like no one's noticing, and it's just this footnote, like, oh yeah, that person's suffering. Like that, it's a direct pathway to Jesus. Paul himself says, I consider everything rubbish compared to just knowing and being with Jesus. And so the suffering of James here, though it's a footnote in this story, it was not in vain and your suffering is not in vain. Now let's read verses four to five about Peter. It says, after arresting him, Herod, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now something to notice here, okay? Uh, the suffering of the people of God is often like progressive. Like it, it's a progression. It starts small. It said at the beginning of the chapter, it was some people unnamed, they were being persecuted. And then James suffered. And now it's like all the way to the head of the church. Now Peter is suffering. And sometimes God allows our suffering to be gradual because suffering is often like training in our walk with Jesus. Sometimes he lets us have a little bit of suffering and that's training us for the next bit of suffering, which is training us for the next bit of suffering. As we know, Peter will lose his life eventually. It's just not right now. And this suffering we are gonna see is training for Peter and the church. God is allowing this progression of suffering to happen so that the church would be trained to be like Jesus. And as we know, you know, when James was, when James was killed, it looks like it was just pretty quick, like, well, just like that, it happened, he's gone. With Peter, God is allowing this space because he's gonna be calling the church into prayer. Sometimes suffering is, is God making room in circumstances to get you on your knees before him. Sometimes suffering is slow and it's not done so that you will begin to ask God, God, will you please deliver me from this suffering? Suffering is God's tool to teach us to pray. It makes us desperate for God. Like, I, I can't do any, all of my options are done, Lord. I need you. I have nothing else. You're my best hope. And that's how, did you know the exodus began with the prayers and cries of God's people? The exodus was a response to the prayers of God's people as they were suffering. I'm gonna read a few verses out of Exodus 2. These are just beautiful. Listen to this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. That's a great definition of prayer, crying out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Man, isn't that beautiful? When we are suffering, our cries come up to God and he remembers who he is and his character and his covenant. And he knows and he sees. And it's on the heels of these cries that God brings deliverance. So right now, if you are suffering, and, and it's, it's like prolonged and it's like, why God know this? This is, it's an opportunity to teach you to cry out to the Lord. And we see as the people of God, 
as it says in verse five, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. We see God respond to these earnest prayers in suffering in the next section of deliverance. And that's the next theme of verses six to 19. God is our deliverer. He responds to your prayers in your suffering and he delivers. And so we're gonna take this nice and slow. Let's read verse six together. It says this. The night before Herod was about to bring him to trial. I mean, like basically to be, to be killed. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. A couple of things to notice. Number one, notice the timing of God. Notice the sovereign timing of God. He waits until the night before Peter's going to be killed. God's like that sometimes. Like, really, couldn't you just, why do we have to, could we make this lesser God? But God is sovereign and he's in control of this situation. He knows what he's doing. And be, listen, this is profound. Because God is sovereign, you can sleep. Do you hear that? You see what Peter's doing right now? Situation's not good for Peter. He's got two chains, two soldiers touching him while he's sleeping in a jail cell, guys watching outside, and he knows, hey, God's got this. Well, there's nothing I can do. I'm gonna go to sleep. I'm at least getting a fresh night of sleep. Who knows what tomorrow's gonna bring? Because God is sovereign, you can sleep. Re- Listen, this is one of my favorite Psalms. The first two verses of Psalm 127 says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. That's happening. In vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Peter knows God is sovereign. He's in control of my life. And listen, these guards, hey, if God's on my side, this is all in vain. So I can sleep. And Peter learned this lesson in suffering from Jesus himself. Remember Jesus just always sleeping in the worst times. Jesus, why are you sleeping? Don't you care about us? Don't you know what's happening? And Peter learned from Jesus, hey, God's, God's in control. He controls the wind and the waves. He controls my life in possible situations. I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be stressed out, getting up early, going to bed late, sacrificing just this frenzy to survive. God is sovereign. He is in control. He offers us relief from this worry and anxiety. And so we can sleep, even in a seemingly impossible situation. Uh, Luke goes into great detail to tell us exactly how many soldiers and exactly how Peter was sleeping so we can see like, there's no way out of this. This is not, this is not looking good for Peter. And what I love about the Bible is it's so full of stories like this, right? Like impossible situations. Like there's no way out of this. The Red Sea. I mean, the Red, you have the largest army behind you and you're at an ocean. Like, what, what, are you, what are you gonna do? This is literally impossible. God's like, yes, exactly what I love. I like getting my people in these situations so that they can see that I am their deliverer. Remember the stories in the Old Testament of Jerusalem just surrounded by hundreds of thousands of soldiers. They're under siege. They have nothing. And in one night, an angel of the Lord kills, wipes out the entire army. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just thrown into a furnace? The guys who threw them in got burned up. Like this is the kind of stuff that God lets happen in his people's lives so that we would be desperate for him, cry out to him, and that he could show himself strong to deliver us. Listen, I didn't, I don't like it, 
but it's there from beginning to end. This is what God does. One more story I read this week, just in my time with the Lord. Uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah, the people of God are in Jerusalem and they've been so disobedient and God's already pronounced exile. Like you guys are all going to be captured and brought away into Babylon. But there was this one guy, his name's Ebed-Melech, and he, we know that he loves and fears God. And this is a prophecy. God gave a custom prophecy to one guy as the whole nation is getting captured. And I'm gonna read us a few verses out of Jeremiah 39. It says this. This is God's word to this random guy. Behold, I will fulfill my words against the city for harm and not for good. And they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. An entire nation is getting judged, and God gives special attention to one man who trusted in him. If, if God is like that, surely you can trust him. Surely you can trust him in your situation. He knows your situation. He knows what you fear and he is able to, to deliver you from whatever you may need. Like Rahab in Jericho, you will be spared if you trust in the Lord. You will be delivered. Psalm 34, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Okay, so I already feel what you're feeling right now. Yeah, but like that's the Bible and you don't know my situation. Right? Like, yeah, Peter chains soldiers, but you don't know my situation. These are, this is for the people of the Bible, but like I have real rent to pay. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, but I, my, my rent is like real. Or, you know what, you don't know my wounds or my bitterness or my upbringing. Like, you, this sounds nice thoughts about God, but I, I don't honestly trust God is able to deliver me and my needs. But it may be from my sin or my temptations. And I just want to, I'm going to be real with us for a second, because I feel this. When the pressure comes, do you do what the people of the Bible did? Or do you run and try and take care of it yourself? Let me just ask you that question before you're like, well, God doesn't pay my rent. I just want to ask you, do you respond in faith and in prayer? Or or do you respond in fear and anxiety and I got I to deliver myself? Because hear me, as long as you try and take care of yourself and be your own God and your own provider and your own deliverer, you will never experience the deliverance of God. You, you just won't. That's not how it works. Listen, we are the people of God. Like he's real. He's alive. He is able to deliver you. I, I just will say this confidently. He is able to to deliver you. And, and maybe even once, just see if he would. Maybe just act in faith. Maybe, maybe respond in prayer. Maybe trust him. And listen, I want to be even more real. That one hurt. Here's another one. Often, these trials are our excuse to sin. Let's be even more real. Hey, I have to live with this person who's not my spouse because rent's just too much. I have to. You know what? I have to lie about my income on my taxes because I have to. 
I have to keep my money. I can't be generous with the church or with people like I have to. Let's be honest. Oftentimes, these difficult situations, we, we let it be an excuse, our justification to sin. Listen, God, you put me in this scenario. What am, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Wouldn't Peter be justified? Listen, I can be angry and bitter and fearful because God, you let this happen. And I'll be honest, here's, this is a real struggle for my wife and I. Uh, we waited many years to have kids because I had a youth pastor's salary and a teacher's salary and we were living in Santa Barbara. And that just, you know, we were not even making it for ourselves. And I was like, there's no way I could provide for a family. Like, this is just crazy. And the Lord convicted me. You love money. You fear not having enough. You just convicted my own greed and fear in my heart. And he says, I'll provide for you. And he literally convicted me. And I was like, I mean, I, here's, I'm pretty smart. The, it doesn't add up. And I will testify. We got pregnant and the situation didn't add up. And within months, you guys, supernatural. Like I supernaturally provided more housing for less money. And, and my wife is able to be a mom. It's supernatural. It doesn't make sense. Couldn't plan on it. Couldn't see it. I just knew God convicted me of my greed and fear. And, and it was my excuse to not trust the Lord and to miss out. And the Lord convicted me and it didn't make sense. And then he delivered me. And I don't think that's just me. And I don't think it's just the people in the Bible. I think he can deliver you from what you're afraid of. I really believe that. I wish Peter could come up on stage and be like, guys, I was sleeping in between two soldiers with chains on me and I was in jail and God delivered me. I wish Moses could come up here and be like, guys, listen, yeah, rent. I had an army behind me and the Red Sea and God delivered me. I wish David could be like, you guys, I was a teenager with a slingshot against a, a giant of war and God delivered me. I wish so bad we could hear Lazarus walk up on stage and say, I was dead. <laughs> I was not breathing for four days four days. And Jesus delivered me. If uh, Jesus hasn't changed, let me just say that. He hasn't changed. He is able to deliver you. He's able to deliver you. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's still on his throne. And I'm preaching, I'm preaching to my own heart. I fear the same things that we all fear together, but let us come under the word of God and see the power of God and say, no, I will not fear I will not be anxious. God is able to deliver me. What should I do? Well, like the church, let's pray. Let's give our needs to the Lord. And then verse seven, I, this is, gets so good. Verse seven says this, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, which is just funny why he'd have to strike him, and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Really quick, again, just to press this home, no chain, no circumstance, no person can stop God's deliverance. Chains fall off. God is able to break chains. Your addictions, your guilt and shame, illness, he is able to deliver you. He can deliver you. Verse eight, then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him, so pause real quick. Just hear this. Always follow your deliverer, okay? Just follow your deliverer. He just did that. You should follow him. You should do what he says. 
Uh, in fact, I'm going to read this quote. This old guy named Matthew Henry said this. Those who are delivered out of spiritual imprisonment must follow their deliverer. As Israel, when they went out of the house of bondage did, they went out not knowing whether they went, but whom they followed. Man, that is so good. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how he's going to provide. I don't know what to do. But I know my deliverer. I know him. And I know what he has said. And I know how he's called me to live. And I'm going to walk with, I'm a sheep. I don't know where we're going. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I know my deliverer. And I'm going to walk with him and follow him. In verse 9, we're going to read verse 9 to 11. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the, it's too good to be true. They passed the first guard and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So good, so good. I love, uh, this psalm came to mind, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. It's like, too good to be true. Sometimes there are times when following Jesus is too good to be true. That, that's true. There are times when you're following Jesus, you're like, I can't, I can't believe what's happening. I can't believe how the Lord has provided. And then we'll read verses 12 to 17. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, that's the other James, the brother of Jesus, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Man, it's so good. I, I love that. Aren't we funny that while we're praying and God answers the prayer real time, we're like, mm, I, really? Is this really? Did God really actually literally do this? Like, God, please deliver him. Knock at the door. It's Peter. No, there's no way. You're, you're crazy. Uh, then he start making up weird theology. It must be his angel. Like, what? Is that a thing? Angels are like, look like people's impersonators like they're making up stuff because they can't believe God is actually real he actually answers prayers he actually delivers out of real crazy impossible situations and then verse 17 is just it, re, it reminds us of what this all is all about when it says he told them how the Lord had brought him out the Lord had brought him out what's the main point here God delivers God does Peter knew he had no part in it. He was literally asleep. He, like, he didn't do this. He, he, he just did what he was told as the Lord delivers him. And then the story turns, the final uh, chapter of the story, verses 18 to 25, and here's the theme here. God judges the oppressor. This is just how any good movie should end. Verse 18, we'll read verses 18 to 22. In the morning... 
there was no small commotion, which side note, I love how Acts just says stuff like that. Like there's no small commotion, meaning like there was chaos. They're freaking out among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Could you imagine? He was chained to me like, and I, he was gone. Like that's what happened to them. After, verse 19, after Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Rough. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their supply of food. Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Before we read the best part, I just want us to notice a few things about Herod. This is important. Herod, I want us to notice Herod's wickedness for a second. Number one, we see in verse three, he wanted to please man. Herod, the reason he even in Peter prison was because he saw it made everybody happy. He said, you know what? This evil thing makes people happy. Let me just continue on to make the crowd happy. The crowd likes this evil. I'll keep doing it. And I think we need to learn from Herod that the fear of man is a trap. And it leads to foolish decisions when we're trying to please people, trying to please the crowd. And in fact, it leads directly to the oppression of the innocent. When, you, when we fear the crowd, when, when the people, what they think about you rules your life, oppression is the result. When you're just living to make people happy, you'll do whatever it takes to keep them happy. That's, that's, that's what leads to so many foolish decisions in our own life. It's so classic junior high, high school. Like all the stupid stuff I did, I just wanted people to be happy with me. And listen, that's personally true. That's also how oppression happens on a systemic level right? Man, this is heavy, but babies are killed in this country to keep the people happy, at least to keep some of the people happy. Human beings are called impersonal names like illegal aliens rather than the biblical sojourner to keep the people happy. I think this matters. When we're living to make the crowds happy, it leads, it trickles down into oppression. It trickles down into oppression. And I just have a a little burden for us, church, in this area. Man, we're willing to say, man, the law's wrong when it comes to killing babies, but, but we're not so quick to say, man, I think the law's wrong on oppressing some of these neighbors of ours. I just think we need to pay careful attention to the Bible's language about oppression and oppression of the poor and the innocent, the people of God. I think we, we gotta pay attention to that language. And then the last bit of Herod's wickedness we see in verse 22 is he accepted the praises of man, right? They're saying the voice of a God. He doesn't, he just sits there and and it basks in the praises of man. A Jewish historian at this time also tells this story, uh, Josephus, and he mentions that Herod's robes that it talks about that he put on were made entirely of silver. So just wearing silver robes. And it's, he says that when the sun rose and he went out to speak, the sun was reflecting off him and everyone was just losing their mind saying, you're the voice of a God, the voice of a God. And whereas Peter, everyone's like, what, how are you here? He's like, listen, it was the Lord. And he gives credit where credit's due. Herod just basks in the, the praises of people. 
And then God judges him on the spot. Read verse 23. Immediately, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him, just like it did Peter, and he was eaten by worms and died. I love the, thanks for that detail, Luke. I mean, it's crazy. There was um, this doctor who wrote a book called The Bible and Modern Medicine, and he talks about a really common illness back in that day where intestinal worms, it was just in a lot of people, and a lot of times he said the worms would ball up, you just plug everything, and you would die. And uh, who knows? But he was like, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And it's, it's, pr- it's really likely that like in Exodus and supernatural, like animal going crazy judgment, God on the spot supernaturally strikes down Herod in all of his glory. And it's just important for us to remember that every sin, every act of wickedness and oppression and injustice and pride is punished by God. He's pure and holy. And that that sin is either punished on the cross where Jesus takes the punishment on our behalf or on that day when we will stand before God. God is holy and he deals with wickedness. And yet look at the last verse again, how the story ends. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This chapter began with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And it ends with Herod dead, Peter set free, and the word of God is triumphing. Evil has its day. It has its day in our life, in our life as a church, in our society, but it will not last. And what will last is the word of God and the kingdom of God and Jesus building his church. Who would have predicted the fall of Herod? Who would have predicted the fall of the Roman Empire or the British Empire? Who can predict the day when the United States is, is, is just another drop in the bucket of nations? But Jesus and his kingdom, and his church, and his word will spread and flourish. And so as we approach Jesus in worship right now, I want us uh, just to be really intentional. Number one, what's an area for me maybe that I'm just in chains? What's an area that I've walked back into my jail cell, put on my chains of my sin? Where's an area that I've done that? Because Romans 6 says, listen, you're not a slave anymore. Jesus is more powerful than that sin. And it's not easy, and I'm not saying it's not difficult and not even an addiction, but let me just tell you, Jesus is able to deliver you. So if that is you, if you are, feel like you are in bondage, let's come, let's enjoy, let's take the bread and, and the wine and remember, it's grape juice, and remember what Jesus did for you, for your sin. He, his body was broken so that your chains could be broken and you could be set free. Maybe, um, maybe there's some bit of Herod in you Maybe you've had this proud attitude. Maybe you've had this people-pleasing attitude. Maybe you've been abusing people in your family at your workplace. Um, Listen, what I love is God still loves the oppressor. Paul was an oppressor. And Jesus intervenes. And he leads us into repentance. And he delivers us from our own oppression. And then the last thing I wanna say is, maybe you're suffering right now. Maybe you're just, you just feel like, man, People don't even notice how I'm suffering and my needs. I want you to know Jesus notices. It's not just a footnote. It's not just passed over by him. And it's not in vain. And and if that's you right now, I just want to encourage you just to lift your eyes 
and just to look at Jesus. Let your suffering push you to Jesus. The one thing that will never change, he can and will deliver us. You will, we will see him face to face. No more chains, no more suffering. And so let's, let's worship him together. Jesus, I thank you that you are our great deliverer. I thank you, Lord, that, um, and you, you're really good to us. I thank you that your word is good and it leads us. I thank you that it's sharp. Lord, it's not just some um, nice encouraging thoughts for the week. Like it's sharp, it strikes us. Lord, I ask that your spirit would use your sword, the sword of the spirit. It would, it would cut away sin, it would cut away pride. It would cut away any bit of us that's exalting ourselves over you. Where I know I'm a better deliverer. No, I need this sin. Would you, would you humble us together as a church? Would we respond like Peter and not like Herod this morning, Lord? Would we just give you all the credit, all the glory as our deliverer? We just humble ourselves now before you. You, you are the one worthy of praise. You are the one worthy of worship. And I thank you for your love for us, Jesus that you, the King of kings, would humble yourself, would die on a cross for our sin, that we would be delivered. Jesus, we wanna follow you. We wanna be like you. So we just together fix our eyes on you this morning, Jesus. We fix our eyes on you. We trust you. Trust your promises. We trust that you are good, that you are with us, that you will deliver us. You are fully able, Lord. We worship you now.